Content warning. Racism, anti-Roma slurs, ableism, suicide, and flying too close to the sun. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. The Ashton Clark system has only had one serious drawback that I can see, and it's taken it a long time to materialize. Yeah, what's that? Something professors have been telling their students for years, it seems. You'll hear it said at every intellectual gathering you go to at least once. There seems to be a certain lack of cultural solidity today. That's what the Vega Republic was trying to establish back in 2800. Because of the ease and satisfaction with which men and women can work now, anywhere they want, there have been such movements of peoples from world to world in the past dozen generations that society is wholly fragmented around itself. There's only a gaudy, meretricious interplanetary society, which has no real tradition behind it. Caden paused. I got hold of some of the Captain's Bliss before I plugged up, and while I was talking, I just counted in my hand how many people I've heard say that between Harvard and Hell 3. And you know something? They're wrong. They are? They are! They're all just looking for our social traditions in the wrong place. There are cultural traditions that have matured over the centuries, yet culminate now in something vital and solely of today. And you know who embodies that tradition more than anyone I've met? The captain? You, Mouse. Huh? You've collected the ornamentations a dozen societies have left us over the ages, and made them incoately yours. You're the product of those tensions that clashed in the time of Clark, and you resolve them on your syrinx, with patterns eminently of the present. Hello and welcome to What Mad Universe! I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hi. Hi. Uh, and uh, today we're looking at a book from uh, the mid-60s by Samuel R. Delaney, uh, one of the titans of science fiction. Um, and the book is called Nova. Um, and uh, we've kind of talked around this before, but in the early 60s there was a movement to make sci-fi and fantasy more literary, sometimes attributed as beginning with Alfred Bester, uh, but more often pegged to Michael Moorcock's editorship in New Worlds. In 1967, Harlan Ellison released the anthology Dangerous Visions, which was considered crucial to the movement, and included most of its significant writers, including um, several we've already discussed, uh, Moorcock, J.G. Ballard, Norman Spinrad, Philip Jose Farmer, and we'll talk about others soon enough. Uh, this was known as the New Wave. Like most artistic movements, it didn't necessarily have a carefully worked out set of principles, and included people who didn't think of themselves as part of a movement, basically it was an attempt to bring more of a literary sensibility to genre fiction, add more psycho psychological depth and surrealism, and attempt more eloquent prose, particularly in the style of the Beats and their descendants that was dominating the literary scene at the time. 
Delaney was one of the youngest of these, uh, only 25 years old when published in Dangerous Visions and 26 when he published Nova, even though it was his ninth novel, if you can believe it. His earliest books have been pulpy science fantasy, and Nova was part of a period in which he was transitioning to a more experimental format. Nova was the last work produced during a burst of productivity during the 60s. After it was published, he wrote nothing for five years before publishing his best-known and most controversial book, Dahlgren. Uh... I, Philip, Philip, I don't know if you've uh, read any of the other New Wave authors of that period. Have you? Um, well, I, I mean, Ballard and Moorcock. And I mean, yeah, obviously, the ones we've <laughs> talked about on the show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, it's um, not something you, I'm terribly ever, familiar with. Yeah, you, you've never read Harlan Ellison, uh, Ted Sturgeon. Um, uh, oh, I guess a little bit on those, but like not, probably not major yeah. works or anything. Um, Philip K. Dick is sometimes put in that category uh, because he wrote, uh, he was in Dangerous Visions as well. Um, it's uh, like a lot of artistic movements, you know, there's an argument over who counts and who doesn't and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. It's essentially just um, people saying, you know, there was the 40s, uh, like the post-World War II and even earlier. There's, I guess you could say there's the purely pulp uh, sci-fi era of the pre-World War II era. Uh, there was an attempt to do, quote, serious science fiction post-World War II, from what I understand. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and that was the the John W. Campbell era, where it was very nuts and bolts. Uh, oh, we're going to deal with uh, serious science and serious, you know, we're, we're going to have, you know, we're, we're going to deal with robots and what they mean. And it, it's the, you know, Isaac Asimov era, uh, Ben Bova era, I believe. Or, I think Arthur C. Clarke would be more in that period. Although he, he kind of straddles both worlds. Um, but then you have the new wave, and that was kind of trying to be more literary and not caring as much about the details of the science and everything, basically. Um, I, uh, I, I do find it, you know, it's a big break in science fiction, and we've kind of, as I say, we've talked around it before, but we haven't, uh, we haven't directly addressed. Um, just quickly, um, I want to quote uh, Harlan Ellison on... Um, on Delaney. Um, I have seldom been so impressed with a writer as I was when I first met Samuel R. Delaney. Um, to be in the same room with Chip Delaney is to know you're in the presence of an event about to happen. It isn't his wit, which is considerable, or his intensity, which is like heat lightning, or his erudition, which is whistle-provoking, or his sincerity, which is so real it has shape and substance. It is an undefinable but nonetheless commanding impression that this is a young man with great works in him. So I think you can say, I mean, again, he had he had, he had nine novels out before he published Nova, which was just the year after Dangerous Visions. But I do get the impression that he was only, you know, the first few were kind of published for a low... Uh, uh, so, yeah, Ace, Ace Books. Okay. So, yeah, Ace Books was the publisher of his first four or five novels, and they were very... Um, it sounds like at first he was doing kind of pulpy... Uh, Jack Vance type post-apocalyptic, you know, s similar to <laughs> as we just said in the last one, except without the Adolf Hitler connection. Um, uh, I would but, assume not. <laughs> <laughs> very much the opposite. So it, it does show you that that uh, that whole uh, mindset doesn't have to be uh, reactionary and and uh, and and pseudo-fascist. Uh, but yeah, so it uh, sounds Delaney like was Delaney was black. We haven't mentioned that yet. Yes, Delaney was black and gay, um, so he was definitely part of a you know that that showed how the new wave was kind of opening science fiction to other writers, um, and uh, yeah, he he um, 
But yeah, it looks like he, it was a very small publisher in the 60s that kind of gave people their start. And he, he was only sort of starting to really take off around the time he wrote Nova. He'd written a few other novels. Uh, but Phil, as you, you mentioned, Phil recently watched the uh, Deep Space Nine episode, um, Far Beyond the Stars. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm working my way through DS9 very, very slowly. Um, but that one um, came up as something that interested me, so I, I went, I skipped way ahead and watched that uh, a little while ago. And um, yeah, it's a great episode. I mean, it stands, even if you haven't watched the rest of the series, it's just, it's a fantastic thing. Um, and uh, it's basically, um, uh, Cisco is thrust into a, um imaginary, maybe, um, uh, 1950s, where he's a black science fiction writer um, trying to get a story called DS, D Space Nine published uh, in his magazine with uh, a black captain, black starship captain, and um, the pushback he gets on that, and uh, otherwise, you know, all the racism that he goes through at the, during the times. Um, and it's uh, uh, just a fantastic exploration of... Um, um, why you know wish fulfillment is important for um, uh, marginalized people and you know yeah. that sort of thing. And uh, so I, I looked into it a bit and found that uh, Cisco's character within you know whatever um, I can't remember his name it was Benjamin something. Be- Benny Russell. Benny Russell. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, was based on a real science fiction author. From a little bit later, they they moved him backwards in time about ten years, um, and I guess aged him up a bit even then. But mm-hmm. um, uh, so yeah, that's Samuel. It's actually Martin. interesting. Uh, apparently, the original plan when they wrote that episode was to have it be uh, Ben Ben Cisco's son Jake, Sarah Lofton's character, um, because he in the show wants to be a writer. Um, so it actually would have fit a little better because Delaney was very young at that point, right? Um, mm-hmm. So they kind of they tweaked it a bit and they had it be about Cisco himself rather than his son. But yeah, you you can see how that was kind of the genesis of it there. Yeah, and it's um it intrigued me, you know, looking into the the actual author who I wasn't familiar with before. Um, I should have been, but I wasn't. Um, and um, looked at uh, the synopses of some of his books and. Uh, Nova seemed the most interesting to me, so I, I thought we could cover that on this. Yeah, and it should be noted it's actually an unusual. It, you know, we we talked a bit about it last time with uh, John W. Campbell, uh, the Odo character being based on John W. Campbell. Probably, uh, they actually gave you know usually in fiction, you know, when they fictionalize it, they make make things you know they give it a happy ending and they you know the real life story is more tragic. And in this case, they they gave Benny Russell kind of a tragic story and uh he you know Samuel Delaney's life is nowhere near that tragic he's a respected and uh you know uh major author (laughs) in the field uh and I mean that would partly be because he came along a little bit later and you know times had changed cultures had shifted uh but the whole bit where he was trying to publish a book and uh the editor said no the again John R. Campbell John W. Campbell uh based uh editor said no uh, because the hero was black, uh, that essentially did happen, and that was kind of the the inciting about incident this for the book. Whole. Yeah, I'm, yeah, about so. this book. Yeah, was it this book specifically, Nova? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it doesn't. Um, uh, Lork von Ray is uh, half black in the story. 
Yeah, he's not really the main character either, though. He's uh, no, but it's you know, right? Okay, so just a black starship captain was not yeah. allowed. Oh, okay, all right. I actually didn't realize it was this one specifically that made the connection. Uh, it's yeah, a yeah, pretty... I have the quote here. Um, uh, uh, Campbell rejected the novel. This is rejecting it for serialization before it would go to print. So it was already going to print, but uh, in book form. But the serialization helped it get more or would have helped it get more notice as it was uh, about to be published. Um, huh. but, uh, Campbell rejected the novel, saying on the telephone conversation with Delaney's agent that though he enjoyed the book, he did not feel his magazine's readership would be able to relate to a black main character. Hmm. So it's uh, similar to the DS9 thing where he says, I like it, but, you know, those rooms yeah. won't be able to <laughs> handle yeah. it. Yeah. Huh, that's very interesting. And and after this book was published, um, Delaney actually went dark for about five years, apparently. He had, he'd published an absolutely ridiculous amount of stuff in the 60s, uh, and he was literally 26 years old when this book came out. He'd already written, that was like his ninth novel, um, as I said, and, and uh, he, a bunch of short stories, including getting a story called I and Gamora, uh, written, uh, published in Dangerous Visions, which was, you know, basically going to become a crucial uh, bedrock of science fiction going forward. Um, so he, he, you know, he was actually just breaking through. So I don't know if it was the experience with Campbell that made him uh, hold off, or if it was just he said, okay, well, now I'm going to take a break, and or if he felt he earned a bit of a break and he wanted to come out with something really serious. Because from what I understand, Dahlgren is very much uh, his, one of his most personal works, and it's uh, like there's... You know, as I say, Delaney was gay, and there was some subtext in this one. But from what I understand, and I haven't read it, uh, Dahlgren is—it's not subtext; it is more explicitly okay. a work of gay science fiction. Um, but um, let's uh, anyway, let, Phil. Why don't you tell us the basics of the uh, the, the the story, Nova? Here, uh, well, it's set in the far future. Uh, do you remember the date? I sorry, I didn't write that down. Thirty-second century. Okay, so very far future. It's um, mm -hmm. uh, your basic um, uh, space opera setting where there's multiple planets inhabited. Um, uh, the, the basic setup of the universe is that there's a um, uh, Draco Empire, which is Earth-centered and uh, largely upper class, uh, though there are poor people living on it. We'll get to that. Uh, the Pleiades Federation, which is middle class, um, the planets are closer to each other, making for freer movement and less expensive movement. So they they don't have to be as rich in order to traverse, you know, to other areas. And uh, the outer colonies, which are fairly livable, and uh, uh, people are basically tricked or forcibly sent there to mine and you know extract other resources. Um, the uh, the entire system uh, of Economic system is uh, uh, because uh, the the uh, starships uh, are powered by something called Illyrian, which is um, uh, very rare. And uh, the uh, um, ones who run the Draco Empire, which is uh, the Red Family, um, are uh, in charge of that and basically run everything. Um, and uh, the... Uh, um, Pleiades Federation is uh, sort of run by the Von Ray family. Um, okay. Uh, the Von Ray family um, are basically the, the head of the middle class Pleiades Federation. 
and um, <laughs> well, basically, it's there's a small like bur the Draco Empire is trying to bring every you know it's it's an empire as you would, and the Pleiades Federation is you know a, can actually be semi autonomous. Um, so, but they they rely on this you know yeah heavy heavy mineral heavy atomic uh, matter, mineral uh, called uh, Illyrian, and uh, if you could. And, and it's controlled by the Red Federations or the Red Shift Corporation, run by the Red Family. So if they, um, if they had, you know, if if someone could provide more Illyrian, because it's this very, very, very rare metal, uh, if someone could flood the market, they could basically, uh, they could, <laughs> they could basically beat the Red Shift family or the Red Family at their own game, right? So, yeah. and yes. um, uh, the story. Uh, that this is all backstory. It's sort of explained in flashbacks. But um, Captain uh, uh, Lork von Rey is um, sort of the... He's not the main character in that we don't focus exclusively on him, but he's sort of the driving force of things. Mm -hmm. You say that's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, you're right. When you said he was the main character, I went, oh, yeah, I guess he kind of is. But he's not the viewpoint character, right? The He's the yeah. Sherlock Holmes, and the Watson is Mouse, basically. Yeah, yeah, basically. And we'll get to that. Um, uh, so, uh, Lork had a uh, experience in college. Well, he met uh, Ray, uh, uh, Prince Ray, who's the uh, heir Prince to Prince Red. Ray. Prince Red, sorry, blah. Similar names, damn Prince it. Ray. Um, Prince Red uh, uh, and Lork met when they were younger. Um, and uh, they uh, met again when they were uh, in about college age. And uh, they got into a confrontation, and um, uh, well, they met each uh, other when they were really young, and uh, it was him and Prince and his uh, sister Ruby Red, uh, Ruby Red. Um, they all met when they were young. Their their parents met each other, and then they met again when they were in college. Prince Red uh, basically lashes out at, uh, at Lork and uh, puts a huge scar on his face. Which uh, Lork decides to keep as a reminder of, you know, his hatred and whatnot, um, and that builds up a. Um, uh, once Lork finds out what his family uh, needed in order to survive, which is the Illyrian, he made that his life's mission and devoted himself fully to it. And um, he, he becomes a pirate. With a, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he came up with a scheme uh, involving one of his. Uh, uh, Friends, uh, Dan, who's an Australian dude, um, who had uh, previously uh, accidentally flown through a Nova. Um, and uh, Lork uh, comes up with a plot to uh, uh, pilot a ship into a Nova using the same method that Dan accidentally fell into and gather up all the Illyrian that would be in the Nova. Um, it, they're on a mission to gather Illyrian from the star, uh, and they need um, they need the spaceships are operated via cyborg studs, um, which are basically just you know you jack in as we're all familiar with from later. But it's interesting that this is 1967, uh, sorry 1968 that he's writing this, um, and they're talking about you know jacking your nervous system into a into a into a, a spaceship in order to pilot it, which is pretty. You know that's pretty advanced <laughs> uh, thing to be talking about in 1968. I think. Um, uh, yeah, um, uh, William Gibson cites this as uh, a big inspiration for Neuromancer. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the precursor to the entire cyberpunk uh, genre. 
Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, we, we're talking about what we might do, uh, Alfred Bester later on, his The Star's My Destination, that that and this both seem like they're sort of uh, anticipating cyberpunk a lot. Um, there's a lot of mm-hmm. the, you know, it's it's too early to be cyberpunk per se, but it's, you know, you can see that kind of starting to emerge from uh, from science fiction very early, very early on. Yeah, it's not something I really thought about uh, while I was reading the book, because it's it's so standard right. now, you know, the idea of just plugging your body into a machine. And But mm-hmm. it's, um, thinking about when this was written, it is amazing it came so soon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. No, it's just, I was the same way. I wasn't even thinking about it. And then after I finished, I'm like, wait a minute, that was written in 1968. And he's describing, you know, 80s-style sci-fi, if not later, you know. so. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it has a different uh, tone than most cyberpunk does. It's right. less cynical, I feel. Yeah, well, a, a lot of that, as I was saying, the new wave, um, the 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 tone and the sort of atmospheric, the very sort of um, lyrical writing, you know, having a bit more of a surreal feeling to everything. Not necessarily, you know, it's of course going around the galaxy to other planets would lead to all kinds of strange situations, but evoking that in kind of a fantastical way, um, that was a big part of the new wave in general. Uh, and it led up to something like Dune, where you have a very uh, atmospheric, very strange world that is still within the constraints of space opera, but it's it's just such a strange, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's treated in, in a very strange surrealist kind of way that borders on fantasy just from the writing, not from anything specifically that happens. Um, yeah, that was a hallmark of it, for sure. Uh, yeah, so Dan is the cyborg stud... Uh... Uh, operating part of it, and he leaves his sensors on and uh, gets completely blind, you know, overwhelmed by the uh, being inside the Nova, and um, it uh, blinds him and puts, you know, uh, a sensory overload permanently in his life and basically drives him crazy, and he's, a, um, right. he's homeless by the, uh, well, the beginning of this story. We meet him when he's homeless. Yeah, it's the classic... Very literally, well, first of all, he literally stared too long at the sun, and B, it's the classic, he flew too close to the sun, right? It's both both yeah. of those things being obviously evoked, right? <clears throat> yeah, but uh, Lorik still has this obsession, and it's uh, is very obviously drawn uh, from uh, Ahab and uh, Grail Quest, which we'll get into. Um, uh, so he, he collects uh, uh, another crew for a mission, and... Um, that includes the mouse, who's a, uh, uh, hmm, I don't want to say gypsy, but that's the word the book uses. It is dated in that respect, but uh, yeah, we'll say Roma, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so he's uh, he's a cyborg stud, but he comes from a culture that uh, shuns that sort of thing. Uh, he's from Earth, um, but uh, and uh, there's stories of... Uh, his people being, you know, lynched and stuff, so there's still heavy racism on Earth. Um, most of the um, uh, red family, or the red family are white, and most of the upper class people we see on Earth are white, so Earth seems to be still a highly segregated, highly racialized world. Well, a lot of the um, uh, Pleiades, Pleiades Federation and other colonies are um, uh, mixed race, and we see that in a lot of the characters having... Uh, mismatched cultural names and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, you have to assume there's been... They're even sort of implying that on Earth there's been sort of a a racially 
shifted people for over the you know the millennia. Um, like the fact that he's in uh, where does he start at the beginning? He's in Turkey, correct? Yeah, I think um, in Istanbul. Yeah. Istanbul, yeah. Um, but he's a Roma, and he's uh, implied to have... I guess you'd see Greek people in Turkey. They're right next to each other. But it seems to be a fairly diverse city at that point um, in history. Um, but yes, I mean, it's not a coincidence that the, the big, wealthy, rich family are, uh, you know, are a couple of white guys, a white <laughs> white people. <laughs> yeah. And the, the captain, who's kind of the upstart, is uh, he's mixed race. He's... Half, what was it, Nor- half Norwegian, half Singalese? Yeah, he had a yeah. Singalese mother, yeah. Right. So, um, anyway, so yeah, so the, basically it's the plan to fly close to the heart of the sun, and I do love that it's basically, his plan is he's a pirate, and he, of course he wants to get rich, but essentially he's going to bring down the empire through economic disruption. Um, <laughs> he's going yeah, to... Yeah, flooding the market, the market with way more Illyrium than it had before, so it basically makes it worthless. Right, yeah, like you... You only need like what, like a tiny microgram to run a spaceship on it, right? And they have, you know, you have to mine for, you know, for years to get, you know, a small amount, but that's enough to power a fleet of starships. But if he can get, you know, just one run at this star, he can get out, you know, tons and tons of it, and that'll presumably, you know, disrupt the Redshift's corporation's hold on everything and you know everything will be <laughs> he, he they chart out this whole economic shift that's going to happen if that floods the market everyone's going to start migrating outward and stuff and not be beholden to the to the draco empire anymore and of course literally sig- signified by a dragon so you know not very subtle there right um but um, um so yeah mouse is sort of our viewpoint character he's a um mm-hmm. uh he wanders around um picking up traits from different cultures, um, and that's uh, right. the quote you entered on. Um, he, uh, particularly the, uh, oh, I didn't write, the, damn it, I didn't write it down. What's the thing called? Syrinx. I think it's Syrinx. pronounced Syrinx. It's, it's a weird Greek word that I don't know uh, the, the pronunciation of, but I think it's Syrinx. Yeah, it's a musical instrument that creates sound, smells, and holograms. So it's a holophoner from Futurama, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure they were influenced by this. Um, yeah, yeah. Or at least things that were influenced by this influenced Futurama. Right, exactly. Um, no, I, so I would yeah, not I be surprised if it was yeah. this specifically that, that influenced Futurama, yeah. But the, uh, the... Yeah, so he's he, um, he learns to play this in the uh, opening chapters, and uh, um, that's his sort of... Uh, motif throughout the throughout the story. He's uh, sort of invited yeah. on the ship because he's uh, he's so good at it. So yeah, and, um, and his his also it, it it can affect all the senses, including smell and taste. At one point, he's talking about that. Yeah, but um, um yeah, go ahead. Uh, another crew member is Cajun Crawford, um, who uh, plans to write a novel, which is described as a completely dead art form at this point. Um, and uh, but he hasn't. He's been, uh, he's sort of an academic, or he's very much an academic, um, and he thinks way too much about it. Like, he, uh, he has um, hours and hours and hours of notes, but he hasn't actually written any of the novel yet because he hasn't found a subject. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, this is sort of, uh, uh, other people have pointed this out, but uh, the mouse versus Caton are sort of the... Um, uh, Nietzschean ideas of Apollonian and Dionysian artistic uh, practice. Right. So uh, the mouse uh, uh, 
creates things, you know, inspired by his surroundings, but they're, uh, the art he creates is beautiful but very ephemeral and goes away instantly after he, after he stops playing. Um, Caton wants to create something that will last through the ages, that will be historically important, but he just overthinks it and he never actually gets to it until the right, end. So yeah. And I mean, you have to think that Caton is, especially when you get to the ending, uh, you know, he's, he's basing it on, Delaney's basing it on himself to a certain extent, right? Like he's, uh, he's yeah, talking yeah. about, um, that's a thing I think a lot of novelists go through where they just keep making notes and keep talking and discussing what they're going to do and they never actually sit down and write it, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very clear that the, the book we're reading is the book that he's writing. Right, the end yeah. of the story. Right, exactly. Um, and, I mean, in that sense, I think you can argue Mouse and Caden are the two halves of Delaney's personality, or any creative person's personality, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. the things you go through when you're struggling to create. You have the the sort of, the intuition, the sort of burst of genius that comes spewing out of you and maybe isn't very focused or organized, but it's, you know, inspiration, versus I'm going to think this through from step one, step two, step three, I'm going to really carefully plan everything out and maybe it has less energy in that sense, but it's more carefully built on a foundation, right? Yeah, and um, I think you need both for right. anything to really work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it depends on Yeah, I think on that's the, actually the... part of what's happening here is that Caton, because he met Mouse, he's actually getting the push to write his novel, which he wouldn't have mm -hmm. had otherwise. And Mose is, you know, maybe understanding his own work a little better from meeting Caden, right? Yeah. I mean, that is essentially what is what the book is about in some ways. It is about, uh, you know, we're, we're talking, we're, as we say, we're going to talk about things like Braille questing and all that kind of stuff, the archetypal Joseph Campbell stuff. This is before Joseph Campbell, by the way. Um, but <clears throat> there is um, a uh, also just a, ses a sense in which it's a metaphor for uh, the artistic process. There's a there's a, a story by Ray Bradbury from 1953, by the way, called uh, "The Golden Apples of the Sun," um, which is a spaceship trying to do the same thing, trying to basically mine a star. And being Ray Bradbury, he's another guy who's often associated with the new wave, even though he got started a little earlier. Um, <clears throat> and he's of course very. He was a poet. He wrote very lyrically. I actually find, I, I agree with Martin Prince with Ray Bradbury. I'm aware of his work. Uh, <laughs> you know, I find him a little bit uh, obnoxious sometimes because he really, he really goes, goes in on the lyricism. Uh, but it does, it does portray a, um, uh, 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 some, it, it parallels, you know, mining a star in a sort of space opera sense with, uh, the creative process of, you know, you're trying, you're mining for gold, right? And I think this book in some ways is expounding on that as the creative process uh, as depicted by a space opera, essentially. It's, it's, uh, it's you're heading out uh, to, you know, mine gold from the heart of a star and, and art keeps coming up over and over again in the story. Like it keeps being about art and culture and how we relate to things creatively and you know the creative journey the the captain's the one driving everything but there's a creative journey that's going on with Caden and and Mouse and and to a certain extent all the other crew members as well right um mm -hmm. not more subtly but they're all essentially you know trying they're all doing the thing that an artist is doing where they're searching for meaning and trying to create something right yeah a lot of them come off as very hippie-ish like uh right. traveling bohemian sort of thing 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's it's that again. That's the new wave. You know, it was the it was the 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 ideal with you know Kerouac and those guys of you know you got to hit the road and, and find the real America. In this case, it's find the real space. I guess I don't know. <laughs> find find you find yourself in outer space, basically. Um, but yeah, that would have definitely affected the culture and had an and uh, yeah, the the traveling around is uh, again due to the cyborg uh, implants, which makes. Uh, you could go to anywhere and just sort of plug in and do work and right. Well, then, um, then that's actually significant because it does come up as I the bit I quoted uh, and a few times like early on you, when uh, Lork and the Reds are at a party and they're talking about um, you know how uh, they uh, they they relate to uh, culture and how oh well there's no you know there's no culture anymore there's no great shared culture anymore that's a point that keeps coming up over and over again and uh, as Caton says in that quote that I, I listed he basically says well wait a minute there is there is culture it's just it's not what people look for the culture in the form of you know great paintings or whatever high art there they acknowledge uh, and that's you know that there's no interstellar culture, but there actually is. It's just it's real, man. It's the the people who go from you know from place to place. He doesn't quite go. You know the same thing people said in the '60s were. Oh yeah, you know folk songs. That's real music, man. None of this processed lounge jazz stuff, man. It's it's essentially the same argument, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it is interesting. And then the other interesting bit of that is that you could argue that that is. Um, uh, essentially Delaney addressing the science fiction genre and what the new wave of science fiction was doing, right? You, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, he, not quite. Well, he's, he's saying, um, you know, you got, science fiction was starting to try to be taken seriously after World War II, but it was doing it by saying, well, we have to be very scientifically accurate and try to realistically predict what's going to happen and what the world is going to be like. Um, and uh, they describe it in the book as, well, it's a very gaudy... Uh, you know, shared culture. It's it's very flat. There's no there's no depth to it. Whereas you, Mouse, you're taking all these elements of your life because to you, a science fiction world is your life, and you're transforming it into art. Basically, you're turning it. You're, oh, okay. you're you're picking up all the pieces and assembling them into something greater. And that's I think that's reflecting what the new wave was trying to do. Saying, well, okay, it's not just about the the nuts and bolts. It's about turning it into a real you know art form basically. So I think that's actually a subtext of the entire book, basically. So Yeah. Um, anyway, but the yeah, so the tarot cards. Um, tarot, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's an important uh, motif throughout the book, and it's something that uh, is taken very seriously in the, in the world of the, or in the universe of the book. Um, they actually believe uh, in the tarot, like as a literal, you know, uh, the um, occult influence on the world and all that um, as an actual thing that exists and it's widely accepted. Mouse uh, doesn't believe in it and he's considered superstitious because of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, and of course, him being a Roma, that's you know, that's a that's a that's a meant to be subver subversion of the usual thing, right? Uh, yeah. He says his his people uh, do it as a scam and that's why he knows that it's not real. <laughs> Exactly. So, although to be fair, they don't necessarily go. I, I didn't get the sense they were necessarily saying, "Oh yeah, this will totally predict the future. This will tell us everything." It's it's they're more dealing with the you know oh the subtext and the symbology of the. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they just, say it doesn't. 
it doesn't predict the future, it just uh, analyzes the present. Right, exactly. Which is actually more or less from what I understand. That's what tarot people will tell you if you ask them. It's not about necessarily, oh yeah, this is a this is a perfectly diminutive method. It's, you know, I've heard people talk about the tarot and say, well, just using it to predict the future is kind of gauche and that's not really what it's for. It's about analyzing symbols and where you're at now and psychological insights, if you will, um, mm -hmm. which is what they use it for in the book. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like I said, Mouse does not, is not here for it, um, <laughs> at least at, not at first. Yeah. And, uh, they, they predict, uh, uh w one thing I actually noticed, I know, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm with Mouse, I don't believe it has any magical powers per se, but it, you know, I have, I am fascinated by the tarots, and, uh, one thing I noticed is I actually think Delaney gets it wrong because he points out that the, the at a crucial point, sort of about halfway through, the, the captain gets a tarot reading and that basically predicts everything that's going to happen. Um, and he points out that there's lots of swords and pentacles. Those are two of the suits of tarot. And uh, that pentacles representing, among other things, wealth and just base materialism and swords being the, uh, the sign of conflict and passion or whatever, or creativity. Uh, I think Delaney actually got that wrong because I believe swords are more associated with intellect uh, and it's the wands that are associated with passion and the fire symbol, as it were. Uh, I, so I couldn't tell you, that's one of my big occult blind spots. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that no, I, I mean, it's traditionally it's the four suits. Of course, they're associated with the four elements and associated with, for instance, uh, Jung put that as the four modes of human thought, which is, you know, base, uh, base, um, uh, like materialism, which is coins, pentacles, and that's earth. Uh, swords are associated with air, I believe, and that's the intellect. Yeah. Cups are with water, and that's emotion and uh, and compassion. And then wands, which are fire, inspiration, passion. And Lork Van Ray is a very passionate fire-type character, essentially. Mm. Um, but So I think he actually messed it up a little by including... <laughs> I think Delaney actually had... It. And it makes sense. You see a sword, you think of a conflict, but Tarot-wise, I don't think that's actually the correct symbolism. Uh, I think maybe things actually... have changed in the in the future. That's true. Yeah, I mean, um, and I mean, they do say with tarot, it's like you can read into it whatever you want as well. But um, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to you don't have to stick to the rule book necessarily. But it makes for a good image, you know, story-wise. Anyway, <laughs> a lot of money, money and swords, basically, which is what happens because it's like, of course, um, Ruby and Prince Red are both uh, out to do battle with him and to compete with him to get the... They don't really understand what he's out for, but they know he's out to stop them, so they they go after him, essentially. Um, um, oh, we didn't mention Prince Red is uh, missing an arm, like, uh, mm -hmm. as a birth defect. Uh, if so, is that the right term for it? Or Yeah, it seems to be a, a congenital thing, not a... Yeah. You get lose an arm in a, in a thing. Um, no, I just mean, do they, is the word defect still used? That seems kind of insulting. Yeah, well, he certainly wouldn't like it. <laughs> yes, um, uh, he will, uh, he will do bad things to you if you even mention it or look at him funny when you yeah. first meet him. Uh, there's a, um, there's a character who was, uh, part of, uh, um, one of, uh, uh, Lorik Von Ray's friends in, um, when he was younger, um, named Brian, who uh, points out uh, Prince Red's arm. And um, there's a uh, passage later on where uh, Prince uh, describes um, 
systematically ruining this guy's life. Just mm -hmm. uh, like he spends uh, a few hours at most uh, over the course of decades, just sort of um, uh, having somebody, you know, uh, uh, plant Years. drugs on him, and he yeah. gets arrest. You know, he gets arrest. He gets fired, and then you know, he basically uh, turns him homeless, and then has you know, he commits suicide, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So he's a very he's that definitely makes you want to punch Prince in the face when you learn yeah. about that. It's because a guy, because a guy was sort of uh, you know un, a bit rude about mentioning his his uh, not even rude. He just kind of was drunken and said, "Hey, you're missing an arm," kind of thing, <laughs> and that was enough to make him try to destroy the guy's life and succeed. Uh, I read a, a Batman story where Penguin did a similar thing to this, <laughs> sort of ruining somebody's life for making a. Offhand yeah. comment about his appearance. So. <laughs> or Old Boy, the movie Old Boy. It's a bit like that. Um, there's. Um... But yeah, uh, so uh, uh, Prince has a mechanical arm and set, which has super, superhuman strength in it. Mm -hmm. uh, but he can't uh, fully become a uh, cyborg uh, like everybody else, so it sort of separates him from other people because right. he's missing an arm and uh, two of the plugs go into the arm. So. Yep. Yeah, it's unfortunately uh, uh, one of these uh, stories we're always stuck with, where somebody has a you know has is disabled in a way that makes that marks them as a villain. Unfortunately, um, uh, yeah, I guess that's problematic. Um, yeah. But uh, in this case, uh, uh, the idea that he can't become a cyborg is um, that's considered very unusual for this world, where everybody has the uh, implants. Uh, they use it for learning well, and for. Sorry? Yeah, it's actually that's actually significant because, and I mean the the reason why that's there uh, is because, as the book itself points out, repeat as Kate through through Katen, uh points out repeatedly that there's an Arthurian uh, element to everything that's going on. There's sort of a Grail Quest uh, aspect to it, and one of the big fascinations of the Arthurian sagas, and one of the big themes is the idea of you know um, the king who is you know disabled or disfigured and somehow uh and that that or whether it's the king or someone else that that has sort of a that reflects a moral um not a weakness but a a, a moral injury essentially uh when king arthur gets injured that's what causes the land to fall into uh decline and they need the holy grail to heal him which will also heal the land as it were um that was actually was there also the fisher king where the uh yeah. the state of the kingdom is dependent on the morality of the king right exactly that is that is that that is specifically linked to the arthurian sagas like the arthurian sagas came out of that belief in the fisher king because that was something that the ancient celts and and the people in uh you know pre-roman even britain i believe uh believed like they 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 literally said like you could not be king if you had you know a def uh, you know a, a disfigurement or anything uh, if you were disabled in any way uh, because uh, that would you know the king's health was tied to the health of the land. There's actually something similar in India, I believe, um, where a um, king. Yeah, I believe there was a, a controversy during Sparta because Sparta was big in this, but uh, one of their kings was actually uh, 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 disabled. Uh, Crippled, for lack of a, anyway, but but my point is, it wasn't a religious belief among the Spartans. It was it no, was no. a it was a practical thing. Whereas the Celts uh, and the, the the Picts and those people believed 
that the king's, you know, <laughs> literal health was going to affect the literal health of the land. Uh, and yeah. that's something. And this that is it, reflected in the Lion King. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That was very Arthurian when that happened. Because that King. makes no sense if you if you uh, think about <laughs> it, you know, logically, but it, it works as a metaphorical thing. Right, right. They have a bad yeah, king, exactly. so they, the kingdom's going to do badly. Yeah, and of course that's been... We've seen that in many, many things over the years of just, oh, wrong person's in charge, the kingdom went, you know, got dark and gloomy and evil stuff. There's some... Uh, Norse myths, I think, that have some similarities. And as I was saying, in India... I think uh, Macbeth, too, has um, has scenes where, um, you know, two horses eat each other or something, and it's a metaphor for, you know, nature itself is is Mm -hmm. reacting to having such an evil person power. Right. And, of course, Shakespeare liked his... With with, uh, um, Richard III, they decided he made him... Even though he probably wasn't uh, disabled in real life, they made him a uh, you know, a, a hunchback and give him withered arm and all that stuff. <laughs> and that was basically because he was writing about someone who who hated Queen Elizabeth's, you know, great-great-grandfather <laughs> who had striven against her. So she, he, he, it was the kind of, we're going to make them as nasty as possible. That's a recurring thread throughout literature. If someone historically was, you know, on the wrong side of the ruling classes, they'd be written as you know, bad and evil, essentially. Um, Speaking of uh, uh, sucking up to Queen Elizabeth, uh, the book (laughs) briefly mentions um, uh, The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer Mm -hmm. um, as a grail quest story, which it isn't really. Um, No. But that could be Caton just getting something wrong. Uh, It has Arthur in it, but it's a young Arthur Mm -hmm. before he's king, and um, there's no grail in the the book, but... I think I think that's okay. I think I, I like he's making a larger point, which is that all these people who have written about the Arthurian saga in one way or another, uh, but they all died before they were able to finish their their actual. Yeah, and that that uh, is story. the case here. Uh, uh, the Fairy Queen is extremely long, but it's a fraction of what it would have been if Spencer had lived. Hmm. So that how how long is it? Uh oh. Um. Let's see. Well, okay, I guess it doesn't... It's it, like, it, it's over a thousand pages. It's very, very long. Wow. <laughs> what, what? You hear about that, and you hear about, like, Chaucer doing the Canterbury Tales and how he wanted to make it, um, you know, a dozen times longer, and you, you're always like, did any of them ever finish these really, really long <laughs> books that they wanted to write, or, you know... They, yeah, they, they I, I don't to... know if anybody could have lived long enough to write anything longer than the... <laughs> I mean, Fairy Queen is all written in rhyming verse, so it's... yeah. Uh, it's insane. Um, I actually haven't finished that yet. I still, I'm still on the last book, and I, hmm. uh, when I, I was on the last book when we started this podcast, and I haven't had any free time, to, <laughs> free reading time to yeah. uh, finish well, it maybe, up. So I should get to that someday. Oh, well, make it. Well, we'll maybe we'll take a break over Christmas or something, and you can and <laughs> catch up on everything else you want to catch up on. <laughs> yeah. Um. So uh, I think we're we're getting to the end here um i did uh, want to make uh, we didn't really talk about uh uh, uh ashton clark ashton clark is a thing yeah i mean it's a it's an interesting little thing just that ashton clark uh seems to have been named after clark ashton smith who was a, a golden age sci-fi writer uh he wrote exactly the kind of pulpy like post-apocalyptic sci-fi that we were talking about last uh, last week, and oh, he which... wrote. Uh, he he switched genres a lot. Uh, he was part of the Lovecraft circles, so he right. was involved in that stuff as well. Yeah, uh, he created well, I the think it's significant. 
Yeah, he he created Sothagua, who's who's put in with some of the uh, Lovecraftian the love the Cthulhu mythos. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's another contributor to that. But I think it's interesting because looking at without having read it, if you look at the early stuff Delaney wrote, um, it sounds a lot like some of the stories Clark Ashton Smith wrote, which were sort science fantasy, post atomic, uh, sword and sorcery, sci fi type stuff, like post cataclysmic. Um, pseudo fantasy sci-fi um yeah i think so one I, of his I, settings was uh was set in the far future i haven't read any of those but yeah right yeah that's it that's it exactly that was the setting that he, he had some old-timey uh hyperborean robert robert e howard type fantasy and he had some future fantasy that was and like uh, I say, and also the mars ones which are sort of near future yeah well it is also interesting because samuel delaney also uh wrote a book uh or a series of books yes okay so Later in the late 70s, he wrote a series of books about Nevarion, which are fantasy stories, um, and they feel like there is a bit of a link to the stuff he's talking about in this book. Uh, I've heard people literally describe it as, um, it's it's got a weird economic (laughs) summary of fantasy, like it's it's partly about... um, I'm not sure, but he, he look he, he almost gives it, I, I don't know Delaney's politics, I don't know if he was at all socialist or anything, but he kind of gives it a socialist lens for a fantasy story, um, and when Ashton Clark comes up in this story, in Nova, he talks about uh, how he, you know, he freed people from what is usually identified as capitalist alienation, he even calls it alienation, um, by inventing the cyborg stud, basically. Or he didn't invent it, he just uh, articulated the problem. Somebody right. else invented it. Right, sorry, yes. He yeah, he was a philosopher who basically said, you know, and it's the same thing Marx talked about, which is, you know, well, we don't we're cut off from our labor these days. We don't we don't literally grow our crops or mine our metals or or even build them in the plant anymore. We go to an office and work in a factory and work in a cubicle. Uh, so we feel like we're not producing anything. We don't feel like we have any ownership over what gets made. Um, and he's saying that Ashton Clark basically articulated this and that the cyborg stud would fix the problem, which it did. Um, So then he ended up, then Samuel Delaney ended up writing stories that seem like they deal with some of these problems that are fantasy stories in the style of Clark Ashton Smith. So it's definitely an homage to Clark Ashton Smith, is what I'm saying. It's in a roundabout way. Yeah. So um, we should probably wrap it up. Yeah, it's been almost an hour. Uh, I did want to mention uh, that I have a Kickstarter going on. Uh, myself and uh, DM Elms, uh, who is a contributor to Strange Romance, are working on a Kickstarter for a uh, a comic uh, part of a uh, a larger project we've got going called the uh, Extended Play Comics Group. Uh, we're just uh, going to do this uh, fun kids comic, which is part of an imaginary line of kids comics, somewhat inspired by the Star Comics of the '80s. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, look for that on Kickstarter. Uh, we've just launched it very recently, and uh, we'd uh, love it if you'd like to chip in. I'm doing the art, Dee's drawing the, or Dee's writing the story, and we think it's going to be a lot of fun. So check it out. Well, that's all for the latest What Mad Universe. We've been me, Cyborg Stud Number One, Adam Brasser, and Philip Rice, Pirate Captain Extraordinaire. We want to give thanks. <laughs> we want to give thanks to producer Alex Ross, master of the tarot deck. And the theme song is by Jack Furick on his wonderful electric syrinx. Until next time, take a dive into the heart of the star, and we'll see you on the other side.